Welcome back to another episode of Seeing Life from a Different Angle. This is podcast number 17. I thought today I would kind of talk about, maybe tackle if we can, the idea that we seem to find ourselves stuck. And I got a message after my last podcast from a friend and she was asking me about, she is a therapist asking me about a patient that she has who seems to be stuck in seeing things in a particular way, seeing it only from one particular angle. And so, of course, it makes sense. I mean, this is kind of what this podcast and the blog are really all about, just kind of looking at things from a different angle and trying to see them differently. You know, invariably, I think we kind of get stuck with the thought that people are the way they are and that nothing can ever change. But it's a mistake, I think, in this regard, is that it's a mistake from both ends. In the first part, the first end, is that no one was born that way. And the second part is that no one has to stay that way. So let me back up for a moment and talk about that idea. I don't believe that people are born unhealthy. As a matter of fact, I've written in the blog and I've talked about here that I believe ultimately that, you know, that very few first period of time in life, we are more connected to this wide open reality where God lives and where love lives and where we can feel more the magic, the beauty of life that we do not experience later on in life, you know, because we move away from it. And I'll get into that in a moment because I think that that's kind of the crux of why it is we stay stuck. But I think when we are born, you know, we have that sense of wonder, for want of a better way to put it. A wonder that I think brings about a sense of joy with all the things that we do experience and we have the opportunity for that joy in the very first period of our life. You know, before the circumstances get to us, the world challenges us and we find the world lacking in what it is we need. We find the world lacking in what it is that we'd hoped it would be for us. In other words, it really isn't as loving or kind or nurturing a place as we longed for it to be. And it's a sad reality that we all have to experience in some form or another. We don't tend to dwell on it. And I think the reason we don't is because it becomes unconscious to us. You know, Freud talked about how we repress these painful experiences. I think one of the painful experiences that we do repress is the memory of that wide open reality, as well as the reason why it is we slip out of that wide open reality into a myopic reality. And I think the reason that we do makes a lot of sense. It's sad, but it makes sense. If we're going to fit into this world, we have to adapt to this world. What's sad about it is, is that we leave that other piece behind. You know, we are all children in adults clothing. And underneath all these layers of clothing, that little child that longs to be loved and longs to feel loved, you know, that's where that child exists. But we're so out of touch with that child. And the reason we are makes sense. You know, when we think about our ego, the ego has two primary purposes. One is to ease tension within us psychologically. And if we're fortunate, the reduction of that tension will bring about a certain degree of pleasure. 
though I think we can readily admit that it isn't always necessarily a pleasure that is good for us or healthy for us. But the goal, one of the goals is to reduce that tension. And as I say, if it brings about a certain measure of pleasure, that's fine. That's good. On the other hand, it also serves to defend. Its primary purpose is to kind of keep things going in the way that they've always been protecting us from fear, protecting us from anxiety, protecting us from discomfort. And so when we think about an individual that seems stuck, they believe that this is the way the world is. We, they believe that this is the only type of grouping of individuals that they can talk to who will understand what it is that they're going through and how it is that they see the world. It really is about a fault within their ego. It's a fault that has developed because their ego saw life differently. It saw life as an ungiving, uncaring, unnurturing place. And therefore they developed this status quo of how they need to function in life, what they need to do in order to get what it is they need and perform the functions of the ego to hopefully reduce tension and at the same time to defend the ego against the possibility of fear or anxiety. So we take this scenario where this young patient is deeply, deeply Im embedded in this thought that this is how life is, this is how they are, this is what they've experienced, this is what they will always experience. You take that thought and I think it applies whether they're patients or whether they're just average everyday Joes that you might run across in the street. Every single individual has this propensity to stay stuck in that space. But when we think about the intensity of that st stuckness, we'll say, you know, there's a different degrees of stuckness that we can have to make up a word. And I think the different degrees are indications of how much pain, how much fear, how much anxiety, how much trepidation and conflict that this person has had in their life so if we start with point zero, where we are loved and we feel loved and we long for love, and we get to this place where at, you know, 1.0, that place and everything that lies in between it has been disappointment. You know, everything has disappointed us, but some people at a point one are significantly less embedded in their pathology. They're less embedded in the thought that this is the way the world world really works and instead you know they have this opportunity to kind of move backward toward that healthier zero but those people who are at a one you know they have been through so many bouts of disappointment and frustration that they find themselves struggling to let it go and it's not like they want to stay there you know no one wants to be a narcissist for instance but none of us are born narcissists. We become narcissists because our ego says, I have to develop a fantasy about how the world works and how it treats me in order for me to believe that my ego's needs can be met. And so I develop this fantasy and I stick by this fantasy and I support it and propagate it and encourage it in others as well. Because God forbid that that fantasy gets challenged and my world crumbles. But who'd want to live in that world? Who'd want to live in a place where they live by fantasy? 
the same is true with someone who's in that imaginary 1.0 place. They're so far removed from the zero that they can't even see it anymore. It's so past the horizon. It's on the other side of the world to them, metaphorically. And so what do they do? Do they give that up, that 1.0 and everything that they hold to be true, that in truth only serves to ease attention of life and oftentimes only for a moment? Or do they stay with what it is they have in order to protect themselves from fear? It'll still reduce attention temporarily, but their fear rules their lives. And it makes them decide for themselves, I'm going to stick with this place. I'm going to stick with what it is that is familiar to me. And in order to maintain the safety of that place, even though in truth it's not safe at all, really, psychologically or morally, but they will stick with that place because in that place, at least they are under the illusion that they're safe. Much like the narcissist, as long as the fantasy continues, that person believes themselves to be safe. If that fantasy gets challenged, they too, they're pretty far removed from that one point, from that zero, I should say, and they're more toward the 1.0, you know. But there are individuals who are so frightened by the thought of change that they must stay where they are, even if where they are is A, not true, or B, not safe. But they've come to believe that it is so. It's what we have talked about before, is that individuals will all develop a certain psychological status quo. And in doing so, they move farther and farther away from what it is that's truly healthy for them and find themselves more and more in a place where they have to hunker down and maintain their, their own safety. You know, um, my wife and I are listening to um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And there's this one scene in the story where several of the animals have gathered together and they are having a feast because the ice is melting and the power of the White Witch is going away. And all because Aslan who is Jesus Christ, has kind of moved, he's on the move, as they say in the book. He's coming, you know, he's coming to bring something to the people of Narnia. And it's fascinating, really, because, and I bring this up, because when we think about it, we oftentimes think, oh, okay, well, I'm going to find these unhealthy ways that I do not classify as unhealthy, but I'm going to find these unhealthy ways to make me feel better about my life to give me more joy, more peace, more satisfaction. I'm going to do things that in the moment seem by the power of temptation to be things that will make me feel so good, whether it's drugs or alcohol or sex or violence, you know, overly exercise, exercising or any other number of things. One way or another, I'm going to find these things. And in the book, what's fascinating is you have this feast and these animals are having this feast and the white witch who represents the evil of the world, she comes along and what does she say? She doesn't say, ah, big gluttons eat more and more and more and more and more. No, she says, you are disgusting gluttons. Who gave you the opportunity to eat this feast? What do you think you're doing? And in so many ways, you know, the individuals who are stuck are like the white witch. They have come to believe her message, which is, 
false. This message of, you know, if I do all these things for myself, if I just take care of myself and I value myself and I love myself and I do all this self-care and I go every day and I do this and I do that, then I will feel better. But the thing they fail to recognize is this, is that every moment, every one of those things is a lonely thing. It is a separate thing from being connected with other people. And because they're doing these things in this particular way, they have this illusion that everything is going to be just as they long for it to be. But they're not living in love. They're only living in fear. Because love requires connection. Fear is about protecting oneself from what it is that one is has trepidations about. You know, especially psychologically, it's a trepidation of tension rising so much that the psyche feels that it will be destroyed. And so when an individual clings to these unhealthy ways, these pathological ways that they see life, what they're really saying is, I am sorely afraid, but I have this illusion in my own mind that if I keep doing what it is I'm doing, I won't be so afraid. So their whole lives are spent on this hamster wheel of fear, thinking I'm actually getting somewhere when in truth they're just spinning. Like George Jetson on the, on the treadmill, you know, just spinning and spinning and spinning and never getting anywhere fast. But they have the illusion that they are. Which brings me to the point of Aslan. You know, it's a fascinating character in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the other series of Narnia. And one of the things that makes him fascinating is that he really is about enjoying life, enjoying experiences. And the connection is so important. You know, one of the things that I think we have all heard throughout our lives is that a true measure of friendship is someone who is willing to give up their life for a friend. And I think we... We tend to undervalue that so much. I don't think it's new. I think we've been undervaluing it for a very, very long period of time because we're so focused on self-preservation that we'll say we'll give up our life for our friend, but as long as it doesn't mean I have to actually give up my life for my friend. You know, I don't want to take the risk of facing something that's going to make me feel badly about myself or risk something that's going to have me looking badly in front of other people. And so I'll go along. I'll go along, not necessarily to get along, but I'll go along in order that other people will think that I get along and that we're all on the same path. When in truth, we're not. You know. And what does good does it do me? What good does it do me to not be who I am, not be who I am at the core? The more I try to be what other people need me to be, the more I try to fit in in order to ease my fear, the more I maintain my pathology in order to make sure that, you know, other people will not arouse fear in me and that I will be safe, whether I'm a narcissist or a sociopath or, or an individual who's just completely self-centered. One way or another, as long as I maintain those things, I give myself the illusion that everything is okay. But the truth of it is, I'm so far removed from that zero place of connection, that place where I could be, where Aslan lives, you know, the lion who says I'm willing to sacrifice myself 
for another, and indeed does so. I won't pretend that, because I think it would be unfair and dishonest to do so, that I am any better in that regard than anyone else who's listening to me now or anyone else who's not listening to me now. You know, I recognize that, you know, I'm putting posts, for instance, on the Facebook page for seeing life from a different angle, that I am putting out there what I believe to be the ideal and perhaps sometimes what I believe to be the divine. But it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm always able to do those things. And I think it's important to know that every one of us struggles. Every one of us has done things that we regret, that we're disappointed in ourselves for. But I think at the same time, it's also very, very important to remember something that, again, in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, Aslan talked about when he talked to Edmund. And one of the things he said is that the past is dead. The past must be a part of the past. It does not mean that we no longer think about the past. It does not mean that the past doesn't have a powerful influence on us. It does. But the past is about learning. You know, when we talked about driving and seeing life as kind of driving in a car, that we need to look over what's going on around us. We need to look at what's going on in front of us and where we're heading. And we need to look in the rearview mirror to see what's coming up on us. If we spend our whole lives bemoaning the things that we have done, grieving over those things, feeling badly about ourselves and riddled with guilt for these things, then we're spending our whole lives looking in the rearview mirror. And it's hard at the same time not to be stuck on that because in many ways, so much of what it is we try to do in unhealthy, pathological sort of ways is to ease that guilt or that shame or that disappointment. It is certainly much easier for us to attack ourselves, to beat ourselves down, to think that we are not worthy. And then we find these unhealthy ways to get this gratification that eases attention. And we think, okay, now I feel better now. But going back to the witch, you know, we don't really get anything by these empty places. They're temporary, they're momentary at best. They're not satisfying us in any way, really. They're just easing the tension for the ego in the moment. And it doesn't do anything else for us. It doesn't nourish us in any way. And so when you think about individuals that you know that are very, very stuck in some unhealthy way, it is important to consider several things. One is that they are, as I said before, children in adult clothing. At the core, they just want to be loved. They want to give love, receive love. Two, that events and experiences have occurred in their lives that have led them down an unhealthy path. For some, those who are really truly stuck, especially those who are truly stuck in very, very unhealthy, very painful ways, they have tried A, B, C, D, J, K, all the way up to Z's for some people. All these different ways to try to ease the tension that life brings. And they have not been able to do so successfully. They keep trying. They keep working at it. And when they land on something, anything, especially when you're pushing up at the higher ends of the alphabet, when they find this something, 
that they believe will ease that tension. They will cling to it as if their life depends upon it. When in truth, it isn't life that they're living. They're existing or subsisting. They're not really living a life because life would be an opportunity to kind of come back around and live and connect with others. But because fear runs their lives, they do not know love. And that's an important thing to remember. That when you engage with these individuals, it's not about changing them. It isn't because if you try to challenge them, they will see you as an enemy. They will see you as someone that is desperate to make them afraid, desperate to hurt them in some way, someone who desperately does not understand me. And so they will run. They will run away from therapy. They will run away from friendship. They will run away from relationships. Instead, it is better to recognize that they are struggling to get their needs met. And it is better to begin to meet their needs in healthier ways. To give them more of what it is that you are capable of giving. Showing them that it is possible. That there is something more in this world. In a way, what you're doing is you're helping them to step back in time. You're helping them to go back to the letter M. You're helping them to go back to the letter F. And you're hoping eventually that they'll come back to the beginning of the alphabet where they'll realize I am lovable. I am someone who can love, who can connect with other people, who can get her needs met or his needs met in ways that are healthy, in ways that are nourishing. And I don't have to live in that place perpetually. We can't, as one of my supervisors years ago said, use two by four therapy to beat someone into submission and say, no, you're seeing this wrong and I want you to see it my way. You can't do that. You could try, but what you will succeed in doing is driving this person deeper inside of themselves. Instead, offer an open hand. It's the best advice one can get, is to be able to say, I'm here for you. And when you're ready to talk about whatever you want to talk about, I'm here, but at the same time, I'm going to show you day in and day out that you are worth something. You're worth more than you thought. Because what it does is it also reawakens that part of our ego that seeks truly to do what is healthy for our ego. The part that believes in God. The part that believes in love. The part that believes that the individual is worthy of love. And so it's only when we tap into that space, when we can encourage someone through the power of loving, that they become possibly cured. And I say possibly because it really is all up to them and it really is all up to the level of fear within them, the level of trepidation in them, the level of suffering that they've experienced in their lives. And so I think when I said before that all of us have done things that we regret and all of us have done things, I say this because it's important for us to remember that we are all in the same boat. We are all a part of the same family. And we all have made mistakes and we all have run from love. We have all run towards the easier, quote unquote, easier path, but certainly not a fulfilling one. No matter how hard we try, money will never make us happy. No matter how hard we try, sex will not make us happy. No matter how hard we try, working out 
drugs, alcohol, anything done to excess is never, ever, ever going to make us feel better. And not just to excess, but without the other person in mind. And it's important that love comes to us as an opportunity to connect with another human being. And I think when we think about a relationship with someone in a romantic sort of way or a sexual sort of way, just like with anything else, it's about a connection. And we need to be able to say to that person, you know, I long to connect with you, you know, and it is about the two of us and not just about one. And so when someone is stuck in your life, remember that it's an opportunity for you to show them that there is love that they are worthy of something. Do it gently, do it tenderly, but let them know. Be well. <laughs>